Hi, this is Danielle Krissa from The Jaws Curator, and this is episode 166 of Art for Your Ear. Today's episode is supported by artist consultant Alyssa Sexton. One of her offerings is to help artists with their websites. What? Why? Who needs help with that? Oh yes, that's right, all of us. <laughs> Alyssa, who was gallery dealer and co-director of Boji Toronto for 13 years, told me the reason she started offering the service was because she, quote, wants to help artists promote themselves without spending a fortune on a website. Isn't that nice? Here are her words on the subject. An artist's website is one of their most important tools. A solid online presentation will help a professional artist sell their work and look attractive to potential galleries. A website for a professional artist has totally different goals and requirements than commercial product or retail websites. Presenting artwork so that it appeals to both galleries and buyers requires a specific set of skills, which I've built over time in my experience selling art and developing online strategies for galleries and artists. Well, that all sounds fantastic to me. Alyssa's basic website design starts at $700 Canadian, plus website and domain subscription fees, of course. In most cases, she teaches her clients how to use their site so that she doesn't actually have to help beyond the initial design period. But, of course, if you need her, she will absolutely be there to help. To find out more, visit this page on her site, alyssasexton.com slash artist dash website dash design. Um, her name is spelled A-L-I-S-S-A-S-E-X-T-O-N dot com slash artist dash website dash design. So, I am back from Hawaii, feeling refreshed and excited to bust some more creative myths with my friend and creative guru, Andy J. Pizza. I've been thinking about what I wanted to talk about in the intro when, voila, the answer appeared in my inbox. Labels. Yep, the labels that we not only put on ourselves, but that the world sometimes forces upon us too. The email I got was from an artist and listener of the podcast named Sally Podmore. You can find her at Sally Podmore Art on Instagram. And she felt that she'd been forced to choose between the label that read athlete or one that said artist. I just wanted to read a few chunks of the email that she sent me because I thought it was so insightful and heartfelt. And I just really wanted to share it with you guys. Ready? Here we go. I was an art kid for sure, but I was also a sports kid. And that is what I'm writing about. My entire adolescent and early adult life, I felt like I was straddling these two camps of being into sports and being into art. I also felt that it was not possible for these two interests to thrive and fully flourish side by side in me. Yes, I was just right there living and believing in all of those stereotypes about types of people. I'll spare you the details, but essentially I felt I needed to choose between those two me's. I chose sports and a degree in geography and then education in the end. I ended up traveling all over the place playing ultimate frisbee for an elite women's team and captained the junior national team winning gold at Worlds. There was a whole lot of stuff in between. So, so much training. Injuries, some lost years, found years, some kids, and now so much paint. And yes, I'm still out there playing too. A huge part of coming to art seriously was pushing past labels as myths. I can't go back in time, but if I could, I would coach my younger self to listen to both of these voices, because for me, that is where the magic happened. (sighs) Ah, man. 
Sally's email almost immediately made me think about a chapter that I wrote in my book, Your Inner Critic is a Big Jerk. And I really want to read you chunks of it. Well, okay, it actually ends up being most of the chapter <laughs> because it touches on this idea of labels so, so much. And um, I figure if Sally's feeling like this and I've felt like this in the past, I'm sure lots of other people have too. So um, I'm just going to go ahead and read for a little while and then we'll bust some myths with Andy. Okay, ready? Chapter three, labels are for canned peaches, not people. Labels are sticky. They're great for organizing your cupboard, but when people put clingy, hard-to-remove labels on themselves, it can prevent creative growth. And sometimes labels have incorrect information. That's why what's inside the can matters. Your inner critic may have slapped on any number of labels. Imposter, just a mom, cubicle dweller, self-taught amateur, art school dropout. It's time to get some warm, soapy water, start peeling those limiting labels off so that we can see what's actually inside. Warning, this label may stop you before you start. Before we talk about the contents of the canned goods, let's take a closer look at some of the most common labels. These are just a handful of the stickiest culprits who, for some misguided reason, think they get to cover the entire surface of the can. Well, I'm sorry, but labels can't have that kind of real estate. You can be more than just one thing at a time. You're not just a mom, a student, an accountant, a retired school teacher, or in Sally's case, just an athlete or just an artist. You are so many things, including creative. Let's take a peek at the fine print. I'm a parent. This is big. But wearing this very important label doesn't mean you can't be other things too. Being a parent can be all-consuming. It can also be, and it will also be, exhausting. And when you're consumed and exhausted, it's likely that your art practice or even all of your creative urges will get pushed to the back burner. It's difficult to find time and energy for creative pursuits when you have your parental label on, but you will be a happier parent and a better one if you give yourself time and space to be a creative person too. The key in this situation is speed. You don't have time for huge creative projects. Don't worry, you will again. So finding quick hits of creativity is what you need. An Instagram a day is a great place to start because let's face it, you probably have your phone out to take zillions of photos of those sweet little faces in your life. There is a list of 30 jumpstarter ideas at the end of chapter eight if you need a little help deciding what to photograph each day. And I will put that at the bottom of the podcast, the, that list of 30 so that you guys have it right there for you. Okay, back to reading. Another thing that your artist soul will thank you for, one hour a week that is just for you. Not one hour to catch up on errands or sleep, but one hour to feed your creative needs. Ask your partner to stay with the kids or get a sitter. Okay, now leave the house. Spend that weekly hour in a place that inspires you creatively. A gallery, a beautiful bookshop, an artsy cafe, the beach. Bring a notebook and jot down any thoughts that come to mind. As the kids get older, these outings can happen more frequently and last longer. And then, when you emerge from the sleep deprivation, you won't be starting from scratch. You will have enough of these inspiring hours under your belt that when you do have a bit more time, you'll be ready with an entire notebook full of starting points. I work in a cubicle. This just in, you can be a creative person who also works in a cubicle. 
It's true. <laughs> All sorts of people have, quote, non-creative desk jobs and are insanely creative the minute the clock strikes five. Whether you enjoy your day job or not, making time and space to be creative will bring you joy. You are probably tired at the end of a long day and the weight of your I work in a cubicle label may be dragging you down, but it should not be used as an excuse. It's as simple as this. If you want to create, make time to create. Schedule it. Use the program you book meetings with to book creative meetings with yourself. 30 minutes a day, an hour a day, whatever you can fit into that week. Mark Bradley Schaup, a practicing artist and lecturer at the University of Tennessee, has some really smart advice for his students who are about to graduate. He tells them that even once they have a full-time job, they also need to treat their studio practice like a job. It's not frivolous. It's important. He advises them to block off as many hours each week as can fit into their schedules and then commit to being in the studio for that amount of time. No excuses. You show up your desk job on time every day and you need to show up on time for your creative life too. I live in a tiny town. Hey, me too. And also, who cares? Thanks to the internet, the world has gotten a whole lot smaller. Publishers in New York can find you through your blog and galleries in Paris can find you through Instagram. I have to be honest, for a long time, I worried that I wouldn't be taken seriously as an artist or curator unless I lived in a cool loft in Brooklyn. As much as I love New York, that delusional excuse isn't even close to the truth. Can you imagine if every creative person in the world lived on the same corner of the planet? Different places give different perspectives. No matter where you are, own that perspective and see it as a strength. It's too late. Oh, this one really drives me crazy. Okay. You don't have to drop everything you've been doing for the last however many years, go back to college, write the next great fiction novel, or paint a masterpiece for the Louvre by next week. Start by adding 30 minutes of creativity to each day. That might mean a drawing per day, a photo per day, or even plating the perfect meal each evening. Whatever it is, make a tiny bit of time for this new creative endeavor. It may lead to an entirely new life that you didn't even know was waiting for you. I would quote a zillion people who didn't start their art careers till their 60s, 70s, 80s, but you know about that, so I'm just going to keep reading. Okay, next label. I'm a fraud. No matter what field you're in, you may feel this way. It doesn't apply only to the creative world. Anytime you push yourself to do something new, something out of your comfort zone, you run the risk of feeling like a fraud or an imposter. What if people do find out that you weren't trained at the best culinary school in France? You just happen to be really good at making pastry. And this is not just an issue for self-taught people either. Someone with a BFA in painting might feel like a giant fraud if he or she decided to take up photography or wedding planning or, say, even art curating. <laughs> I was walking around with a giant imposter label on my forehead when I curated my first few shows. I don't have a PhD in curatorial studies. What if someone found out? They did. No one cared. I worked hard and I loved what I was doing, and slowly but surely, the imposter label slid right off. Maybe it was due to all of the sweat. Ask for help or fake it till you make it. Either way will work. If you love what you're doing, keep doing it. Eventually, you will become an expert. These are just a few of the most common labels that we slap on and may have a hard time seeing beyond. But as you'll see, there's so much more to each of us than these one-liners. 
Acknowledging and owning these labels is the first step in transforming them from creativity-halting excuses into a fascinating part of your unique story. You may be a parent from a small town who's also an insanely talented painter, or a self-taught musician who works in a cubicle by day and plays in blues clubs at night. Decide which part of the fine print you're proud of and which bits are slowing you down. This is a description of you, after all. Make sure that all of your information is included and correct. Fill the can. We've removed those sticky, incorrect labels. Now what? Time to look at the contents of this label-free can. Do you know what's in there? Are you a poet, a painter, a dancer? Maybe all of the above. There is a lot of fun in figuring that out. So I have an assignment for you. List five creative activities that you've always wanted to try. Things for which you have no formal training. If you're a writer, maybe it's painting. If you're a painter, perhaps it's weaving. Pick one and try it within the next seven days. Then repeat with another activity you've always wanted to try and repeat until you've done all five. It is fine to start small. The internet is rife with DIYs, training videos, etc. There are so many generous people out there willing to share what they know, so take advantage of that. The next step up from that would be online courses. These range in price and outcome, but there are a lot of them out there and they're really worth looking into. Keep in mind that some trickier mediums will require signing up for an actual instructor-led course. No self-taught glass-blowing, please. <laughs> New and improved. The old labels are gone, the can is full, and you've started to gather a complete list of ingredients that go into making you the creative person that you are. You now have a brand new custom design label that you can display proudly as you head down your own creative path. Now that you've put on the correct label, own it. Be proud of your contents. During a block or after getting some unhelpful criticism, you may be tempted to slap that old label back on. Don't. Show people this new and improved version and let them know that you are so much more than just that old sticky label. Ah, and that, in a slightly edited nutshell, was chapter three. I want to challenge you to think about your label, the fine print, and whether or not all of your ingredients are actually listed. You can do that with the, uh, with the initial project of you know, figuring out what you want to try, but I really want to, you know, you know how I love lists. Really write this down and figure out everything that should go in there and then put it on that label. Well, you know, I cannot think of a better segue into talking with Andy than an analogy because between the two of us, there has to be at least 15 of them in this episode. Now, just a quick heads up, there was some weird echoing on my end from time to time, so just pretend that you're in a magical cave of creativity and roll with it, okay? Great. Okay, entering into the magic cave now. Hello. Good morning, Mr. Pizza. Hey, how's it going? <laughs> Good. How are you? Fantastic. I was actually uh, talking. Do you have a one that's your name? On yes. Skype? Uh-huh, right. Uh-huh. I, I'd actually typed the same thing to that oh. uh, thing. Which, ready when you are. <laughs> oh. I, I was like, oh, I got a message. And I went over and I was like, oh, it's Greg. <laughs> oh, Greg. Greg. No, he has a much nicer computer than I do. So I always just record over here. We yeah, have we have so, grand plans of like turning a spare bedroom into like a podcast studio where I have my own setup and nope I'm still under a bed sheet yeah, so, so that's the way it goes yeah, it's hard those yeah. those transitions are hard to make happen you they have are. to stop everything and yeah 
Yeah, and, and I'm, like, I'm too tired. <laughs> I'm always too tired. And I always feel like they only happen when it's like they have to happen. Like there's no, there's no choice for some reason. The old thing just doesn't work anymore. And yeah, yeah. yeah. That's how my my art studio studio happened last year when it, we renovated our basement and turned it into a proper studio because I was working on a, a solo show and I'd never done big pieces and I, I just didn't have room in my tiny little spare room yep. and so it was like okay I either have to go rent something somewhere or I need to renovate this terrifying basement yeah and so we did that <laughs> yeah yep I understand that um, uh, you know what I think we are just already going okay sounds yeah. good to me okay um so you always have five million yes. things going on can uh, you hear me echoing no I don't hear any echo okay <laughs> I can hear me. It's super annoying. <laughs> do you hear, do you, it's not from my end, I don't think. No, I think it's me. Oh, okay. Sometimes it goes away. All right. I'm just going to keep talking. We can do a, we can recall if it doesn't go away. Okay. Um, okay. So one thing, because I think we should just jump right into myths today because yeah. they're so good. And um, But I wanted to ask you, because last time you were on, right after you were mm-hmm. on, your Skillshare class came out. Yes, absolutely. and I watched it, and it was so good. So <laughs> I want you Thanks. to plug it because I want uh-huh. people to go check it out. And then um, I'm doing one. Oh my gosh, have you recorded it yet? No, uh, um, I'm going yes. in March to record it, and um, we've got. I the- am so thrilled for you. Oh, thanks. Hey. They are amazing. I, like I, yes, they are. I am kind of paid to say that because they sponsor the show, but. I kid you not, the process of making the class was so good for this material, stuff I've been working on for a long time, and just talking with them, and they, they, they're, they're just real pros, and it was a, yeah, it was an incredible experience. I felt like the, the content really got elevated through that. Did you go to them in New York, or did they come yeah. to you? Yeah, I went to New York. Yeah, that's what I'm going to yep. do, too. I just watched one that Emily Henderson did, too, that was really good, but they went to her. Right. Um, so I wasn't sure where if yours was if in yours your studio, studio or studio. no. It was in uh, a set, like yeah, a, an yeah. apartment that looked like it was mine. It was not. <laughs> you could just pretend for a couple of days that you had an yeah. apartment in New York. In Manhattan, yeah. yeah. yeah it's very fancy. <laughs> you know how it is. Elevator that goes straight into it opens up into the room. It was yeah something else. <laughs> oh, to pretend yeah. maybe I'll be in the exact same place with a different set. I bet. What's your class on? Um, well, it's going to be, I don't know if I'm allowed to say, um, it's, it's my (laughs) usual stuff. Like, um, I did a class with creative bug and it was actual art stuff. Like it was collage and things like that. This is going to be more, less Danielle, Krista artist, more jealous curator. And Mm. so it's, um, we're doing, I think eight chapters and it's basically breakthrough moments like um aha moments that i've had and um hopefully passing those on to people that are watching that is incredible yeah uh, that's what i'm doing as soon as i get off of this is that i have the outline of the of all the chapters but i have to um the producer sent it to me and said can you fill in all these blanks and i said yes and i haven't done it yet so that is on my schedule as soon as i hang up from you yes one of the things that was really helpful to me was that um because a lot of my class is really philosophical. Uh, that sounds, <laughs> sounds ridiculous, but it's, you know, it's, philo- it's theory, it's, it's stuff like that. And one of the things that was really helpful that they did for me was say, you know, each step 
can you like describe it in an action that you could take? And there was this, this process that I went, that was kind of a rough process really to just sit down and each one of those things say, what is an activity you could do? A, you know, a thought experiment on paper and, and, you know, with creativity and action, um, what, how can, how can I frame it that way? And actually that process I think made the class a lot better, but also made the, made the process a lot more robust. Um, and so, yeah, that was really helpful to me. Yeah. And you probably learned a whole bunch because you had to actually like, instead of these just being thoughts that you have, you have to crystallize them and explain them to other people in a way that makes sense. And like, here's an activity that goes with it. Like it's, you really have to think about it. I know we're not doing, I don't, we didn't do, uh, those who can't do teach that myth. Did we last no, time? No, not yet. Well, Should we throw it in in a future <laughs> one because I think it's so it's such a terrible uh, myth. And actually, um, a listener because I approached this on my show once, and a listener had sent me the original quote. I believe it was like Socrates or Aristotle or something. And it was something about how you know those who know do, but those who understand can teach. And that's where so it was actually the opposite sentiment. And I really hate that those who can't do teach because one of the most powerful things that you can do is to teach because just like you said, nothing crystallizes your own values and practices, like having to explain them to other people. Um, so yeah, that's a freebie myth. I guess. I was just Look at that. You just busted it in like 27 seconds. <laughs> All right. I'm sorry. This is your show. No. You know, it's, it's hard for me. I have my own podcast and I get, no, this is really just Andy J pizza 2.0 over here. That's no. really all this is. No, um, that was a good, that was a good one to bust because yeah, I find, um, I really like teaching, but, um, yeah, you have to do a lot of thinking beforehand so that it actually makes sense and people can actually take something away from it. And that's why I just loved yours so much. I thought it was, um, because right when I watched it was exactly when they emailed to ask if I would do one. And so I went and watched yours and I was, um, inspired slash intimidated because I was like, it was so good. Oh, that's so nice. So hopefully I, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited about it. So I'm just sort of, yeah, I, I go there in March, beginning of March to film it. So. It was cool to do the class because I think it'll impact, uh, I want to turn this content into a book. And I think what I learned about that, that my class is all about how you have your big break. And, uh, essentially that's about this Dolly Parton quote I always go to, which is knowing yourself and doing it on purpose. Like that's the idea of art. And I've, you know, it's uh, it's kind of like finding your superpowers, but then also having them on command. And I think there's a lot of content out there that is either focused on the kind of the questioning navel gazing of like, who am I? And then there's a lot of content out there that's like, let's take action, let's do stuff. And I like, you know, my process is really about saying, who do I think I am? And here's some like hypotheses. And then what can I make to actively test that and, and, and see if those answers are true. And it's just kind of a cyclical process. And I've done, I call it creative side quest. And I've done probably 10 side quests in my creative career and they've all slowly but surely kind of pivoted me to a, a deeper sense of who I am as an artist and in a sweeter spot in my creative business. And that's kind of the, but, but it was amazing to go through it in the, in a class setting because it really, really heightened, not just the, the question side, but also the action side. Um, so I think you're going to, I think it's going to be an incredible experience for you to, to go through it that way. Mm -hmm. 
I think so too. Um, so what would your, what would your, like, um, was that it? Like the, 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 the way to sort of explain what your class is? Like, as I love that it was, it sort of, cause everybody wants that big break. Right. Yes. But I love right. that you, and I don't know how much of the class I'm allowed to give away, but I love yeah, that. Say whatever um, you want. There's tons of stuff to go at and that, yeah. yeah. Video format's really helpful. So you can say whatever you want. Yeah. Okay. Well, I, I just love the idea that it's like a lot of people want that big break quick. Yeah. Uh, oh, like yeah. me, I would love it. I would love a big break later today. That would be great. Be great. Um, <laughs> but I just really love how you kind of talk about positioning yourself for that and, and yes. sort of the path towards it because, um, yeah. Can you talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, I'm no, anybody that knows my content knows that I'm almost to an annoying degree obsessed with the hero's journey. But the, the, the reason is, is because I discovered it in my early twenties and it really was the, if anybody doesn't know, it's Joseph Campbell's hero journey. It's comparative myth. They use it in screenwriting story structure. Um, but it's just like a, a series of phases that, uh, a story goes through and when I discovered that in my early 20s, it really changed my life because I feel like when you're starting a journey and you don't have the, you know, mall map, you are here sticker, like you don't know where you are on the journey. <laughs> the temptation is to skip to the end because you're panicking because if you don't have any sense of your center or where you are. You're just constantly like, am I there? Am I there? Like, I, I gotta, you know, I gotta, I gotta win. I gotta beat it. And I think there's something about, um, the hero's journey for me that said, oh, I'm in phase three and I can, I can really dig into phase three because it's part of the process. And it, and I found my center and it's kind of like seasons too of like, um, you know, it, for a farmer, they're not trying to harvest things in spring or, or I'm, I don't know anything about farming. <laughs> but, but know, I'm with you. I'm with you. Keep going with that analogy. Season and there's a planting season. And, and if you didn't have any sense of what that journey looked like in terms of phases and in sequence, um, then you would just be trying to do it all at the same time. And I think for me, I, I also have called this process, the creative career path, because, you know, where the corporate ladder is kind of like a linear, it's like old school game of like level one, level two, level three. The creative career path is much more like an open world video game where you can kind of do anything at any time. And it's actually pretty overwhelming. And I studied all of my creative heroes and I started seeing this pattern. And those are, that's what becomes the, the phases and the steps. And it helps you kind of figure out where you're stuck, what season you're in, put the time and work into it so that you can work steadily towards that big break. Does that make sense? Did that feel right to you? That felt exactly right. I love that there were several analogies in there, yet oh, mixed it was clear. <laughs> yeah. There was there was a mall map, then some yeah. seeds and a harvest. You know, I thought about, I've been thinking about this lately because that's the only way I know how to talk about anything. And uh, I think it's kind of like uh, Lego Batman or, or Wreck-It Ralph or Ready Player One, where it's like a billion different properties intermixed as yeah. like, you know, I don't know, cultural touch points. I, I don't know. I don't know how to say anything in a, in a normal way. No, I, I live with the king of analogies. Everything really? Greg says is an analogy. And there's often like within one story, like seven analogies. Yeah. yeah I mean, but yeah. like, it all makes sense because you're like, oh yeah, if you don't get the first analogy, hopefully you'll get the fifth, you know? But yes. I, I think I like the farming analogy, even though you know nothing about farming, because I think sometimes people try to harvest the little seedlings that are popping up. And it's like, it's not time. 
100%. It's not a yes. carrot yet. It's just like a little green thing. Like you have to like let it sit in there for a while. And I think, uh, you know, going back to my experience when I, I had gotten lucky early on in my career and I had skipped to a final boss uh, and I got lucky with an opportunity once in a lifetime dream opportunity a year out of college. And it was very much like skipping to the last bad guy. It's like on <laughs> super Mario, you use the warp whistle and, you know, whistle your way to the last, uh, last level, right. When you start the game and what's going to happen when that happens is you're going to get your butt kicked because you haven't put in the time and gathered the items and all that good stuff. And I think, um, this process is a, is a way of, cause you know, skipping to the end, most people aren't going to get that lucky anyway, but really you don't want to because no. you're not going to be prepared. You're not going to be prepared. And I actually think that the journey is quite fun. You know, it like is. you don't really want to like hit the end when you're 22. 100. It's the same. Yeah, exactly that. Like I, uh, you know, the, the whole fun of the game is playing the game. If you, if you turn on the game and skip to the last level and beat it, you just ruined the point of the game. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You didn't play at all. You're just done. <laughs> yes. Uh, so yeah, that's, that's kind of the idea. Um, but yeah, I'm excited for you. I think that, uh, Skillshare does, does really great work and it really, um, I think leveled up my content, just collaborating with them. Mm -hmm. I thought it was so good. So yeah, I'm pumped. I'm ready. I don't know what I'm going to wear yet, but I'll figure that out. <laughs> yeah. That is a big question. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, let's go to our myth. Let's bust some creative myths. Let's, do you want to start with yours that you sent me? Uh, yeah, that's, yeah. that's, uh, great. We in this, it's this idea that the only art worth making is the stuff that flows instantly, you know, and it's this idea of like, you've heard it a million times. I was just watching a star is born for the second time last night. Yeah. He has this part where, you know, this song just kind of came to me and just fell onto the page. And I, and I think all creatives have had that experience, you know, those pieces of work that just like, boom, just straight onto the canvas. And it's the best thing you have ever made. And you know, I think there's this myth though, that that's the only stuff worth making. Does that, uh, does that make sense as a mm -hmm. myth? Do you know what yeah. I'm yeah. about? Um, and so I have this theory cause I I've went through that in my own creative practice a bunch of times. And what that myth does is it me it doesn't allow you to have the growth mindset in your creative work. So when you start working, you know, if you're a half an hour in, and it's not falling onto the page, then you're instantly thinking, oh, well, this can't be my best work. This is mm -hmm. going to be the bad stuff. Um, <laughs> you know what I mean? Which makes you give up. And you're like, well, I guess I'll just procrastinate. And I think if you do that long enough, you get into this really bad creative block. And then you're, then all this anxiety happens about your work where you're, you're always trying to show up and catch that lightning uh, the, within the first couple of minutes or you give up. And mm -hmm. I have a theory that, uh, that it's more like uh, a plane taking off. So <laughs> I feel like, um, you know, when you're in a plane and, and it's taxiing on the runway and someone always makes the joke of, uh, they say, Oh, are we, we going to drive, drive there? there? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Cause it's, cause it's so awkward for a plane to drive, right? It feels ridiculous. <laughs> and, uh, and I think that's what it feels like when you're really struggling on a piece, you're just like, I'm not soaring. This isn't right. But the fact of the matter is 
the plane has to taxi on the runway to find liftoff, right? You, to find that creative lift. So I think, um, does that all, I'm, I feel like I'm monologuing at you. No, I love it. I'm just, I, I, no, I, I'm not interrupting. I'm just listening. Do you have that? Do you have this? Have you experienced this? Do you know what I'm talking about? Yes, absolutely. And I think that, um, you know, before Dallas Curator and before, like I started learning all this stuff from all these amazing people in my community where you kind of go, oh yeah, like that totally makes sense. Everybody feels like that. Um, I felt very much like I was supposed to have these sit down, make a masterpiece. If I didn't, then that prof in university was right. And I should never paint again. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And every little bit of insecurity I had would feel justified in the, those moments. It was like, uh-huh. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I knew I shouldn't have bothered. I knew I, I couldn't do this. And so, yeah, you feel like you're supposed to have like, I think catching lightning is the, the perfect thing. It's like, that's not realistic. Yes. And I think, uh, I was talking to my buddy who were both runners. He's much more of a legit runner than me. His name's Matt Rust buddy from high school. And he, we were talking about how we've learned so many creative lessons from running. And he said that, uh, you know, his best runs almost always come the day after a terrible run. And so I think rather than it be this binary thing of, you know, it's either you got to struggle for your art and only the good stuff comes from some tons of pain or the opposite, which is the best stuff just flows through you instantly painlessly. I think that there's a relationship between them. And so for me, now I've tried to train myself if I'm working on a piece and it's really not coming together and I'm having to cobble it together and, you know, layers and layers and it's just a mess. I'm really having to strain for it. Um, I can, I can have the piece of like, yeah, this, this tension is the setup for when I come to the easel next time, I don't work on an easel, but, but <laughs> the metaphorical easel next time, uh, all of this blood, sweat, and tears is going to lay the foundation for want, for uh, a lightning in a bottle piece um, in the coming future. Yeah, and but you just have to make sure you go back to the easel. Yes, you know, because exactly. that's the problem is that you sometimes you just give up and you don't go back. But um, I I do that too, and sometimes what I do is when <laughs> when things are flowing, like I'm working on a big show right now, and I'll have days where everything I do is magic. Yes. And then I just keep going and going. And I say to Greg, like, order takeout, because if I stop, it's, happen <laughs> yeah, it's happening. I have to keep going. Yes. And then, you know, I had like a couple of days like that. And then yesterday or the day before yesterday, I just, I wrecked a ton of canvases. I used up a bunch of paint that I ended up having just to scrape off and get rid of. And it was just like nothing I could, nothing was working. Yeah. And so then I just took the next day off completely. And worked on other stuff, like podcast stuff and whatever, because I was like, I can't, I know that it's not going to go well. And instead of frustrating myself, I'm going to shake it off, take a deep breath, and I'm going to come back and do something completely different. And so I went back down there last night and like the magic was back. So I was up till one in the morning because, you know, so you just have to cut yourself the slack to know that magic isn't going to come every time you try. Yeah. And I think there is a correlation between you will have more magic if you'll have more crap. Yes. You know, Seth yeah. Godin yeah. talks about, uh, if you want to have more good ideas, have more bad ideas. Just have more ideas. Like the people that have the most good ideas, just have the most ideas and lots of them are terrible. Um, and so if I talk to a friend, a musician or a, a painter or whatever, and they're having a really hard time, they feel like they've been in a creative block and in a season being really stuck for a long time, um, I always just, am, uh, that's my first go-to is like, 
Well, are you making piles of stuff? Because if you're not making piles of stuff, I think you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah, because you can't crack through. through. No. Yeah, you got to make the crap to get to the good. Because yeah. if you make 100 pieces, one of them's going to be good. But if you make zero pieces, none of one. them will be good. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Um, there was um, in Creative Block, there was um, um, an interview I did with um, Dolan Guyman. He's an American artist, and he had said, he does a lot of commissions and stuff like that, and I had asked him about being blocked. Like, what do you do when you've got people waiting for you, right? Yeah. And he said that uh, he actually builds time into projects to be blocked. Mm, that's really good. So he said, you know, like, if I know a piece, like it's a big piece, like, you know, whatever, will take me about two weeks to make. He said, I tell the client it's going to be about a month. Because he yes. said, I know that there will be two weeks in there where I've got nothing or I've screwed it up and I'm not happy with it. And he said, it's not a bad thing. It's just part of the process. And there are going to, it's just a reality that there's going to be that hitting the wall and so he just builds yeah. it into his schedule and I remember hearing that that was you know when did I write that book 2011 or something yeah. and I that was a huge aha moment for me because I was like what yes <laughs> instead of feeling I, like I, oh no a block is coming it must mean that I suck and I should quit being an artist it just is like no it's just part of it you just need to yes. build that time in because everyone has those moments where nothing good is happening <laughs> Well, I, yeah, I really love that. And I think there's this mental gymnastics of getting, changing how you think of productivity because it happens really, really differently for creative stuff. And I think it's because the most productive thing you can do in creativity is to play. And so, you know, uh, I heard the same kind of thing from John Cleese. He would say that when he was writing an episode of Monty Python, what he would, if, if, if efficiently it would take him two weeks to write it, he would tell them I need six weeks to write it because he would want to get in what he called the open mode instead of the closed mode, closed mode being like executing tasks, think traditional uh, productivity. And the open mode was he'd say, okay, I have two hour writing session or a three hour writing session. And the only thing, the only product, productive thing I'm trying to do in that room is to have fun. Like I have to enjoy it. I have to, and because if I'm not enjoying it, I'm not playing. And that's all I have to do. And if I do that for six weeks, I will get out of that six weeks, two weeks of productive time, so to speak. And yeah. I think, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you'll right. get the good nugget out of all of that, but you have to. Yes. Have to. There's a, a, a project that um, Trace Beagle gave me, and I, I do it all the time in workshops where you, um, and I've, I've talked about it five zillion times, but I'm going to talk about it again. I've never heard it, so. Okay, great. So you take an image um, that you can get from anywhere. I found a cool one of like Andy Warhol in a stripy shirt with a VW bug behind him. And yeah. um, I, I photocopied it onto little cards. Um, I just printed it on an eight by 10, four times, cut them out. Um, so I had a stack of 50 of them. Yeah. Then you set a timer, um, and you give yourself like one hour and you have to alter all 50 of them within that hour in some way. Yeah. So that might mean, you know, like on a, one of them, I gave Andy eyeshadow. Next, I gave him lipstick. Next, I painted the beetle, but nothing else. Next, yeah. uh, ripped it up, made it a little collage. And, um, in that hour, I did, um, I think 23 that I liked yes. and 28 that I was like, oh my God, this is horrific. And then afterwards I was like, I was like, I just made 23 things I like. Yes. 
Like that's, that's insane, right? Like, when have I ever made 23 things I like? And I did it in an hour. And so those 23 things were then little jump starters for projects that would actually turn into something real. But I recommend that project to everyone because you play. Yeah. Yes. And you aren't, you, because you've got that timer <laughs> counting down, like if you're really crazy, set it for 30 minutes. But, um, you know, because you've got that count, the thing counting down, you can't get precious. You can't get in your head. You can't, you know, spend five hours on one because it's like you yeah. don't have that kind of time. And so it's a really good way to get unblocked and just play and get moving again. And kind of what I always think of it when I'm working and like the other day when things were going badly, square peg, round hole. You know, when I'm working on something and it's just like you said, like it's getting messy and there's too many layers and it's getting muddy. I just feel like, okay, this is a square peg in a round hole and I need to stop, yeah, wipe off all the paint and I need a round peg in a round hole because this is clearly not working and, but that's okay. I just need to readjust. Yep. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. I love that. I think we did a good job on that one. Do you have anything else you would did. like to say about that? I'll say one little thing. Uh, you know, I learned that I think this idea of, uh, burning through being willing to burn through bad ideas and bad pieces with the Andy Warhol thing, you know, willing to make a bunch of pieces you hated or were disgusted by. Um, I learned that, uh, I was forced force fed that at school where we had to come up with four ideas for our final project. And I think I did what lots and lots of creative people do. I think there's this pressure of like, until you have an idea, then you're panicking of like, oh, well, you know, do I have anything? And, you know, so you want to go with your first idea. So I came up with an idea and it was, and I was like, all right, I know I'm going to do that. And I spent all of my time developing that before I had to pitch my four ideas. And then like the night before uh, that I had to pitch them, I thought, all right, I need to come up with three terrible ideas. <laughs> so that they'll, pick, the that they'll go with this guy. <laughs> Yeah. And so I laid there in bed and I thought through, uh, three more ideas. And the third idea I came up with when I was really stretching for some crap, uh, was the idea for the indie rock coloring book. And that became my first published book and really set the stage for my whole career. And I only came up with it because I was trying to come up with garbage. Like I got that was, and there was no pressure. Right. And so there's this thing that happens when you're like, okay, I need an episode. I'm going to come up with three episodes, like, and I'm going to scrap two and I'm just going to have fun the whole time. Like there's just something that that mindset, it really takes the pressure off. And, and, uh, yeah, I yeah. think that's a lot you can learn from that. That was my life when I worked in advertising, Yeah, you know, really. cause you weren't allowed to have one idea. You had to yeah. go into your creative director's office with like 10 Yes. And then they'd send you away and tell you to come up with 10 more. And sometimes the first idea was the best idea because sure. it was just yeah. simple and clear and straightforward. Um, yeah. But sometimes the 12th idea was the best one because you'd actually let it roll around. That's why with my collages, I never glue things down right away mm -hmm. because in a week I might actually find a different little person that I could glue down that makes the thing stronger. So I, I just, I wait a little bit because you never know. And you know, sometimes that first little person is who gets glued down, but, um, not usually. And did you ever hear, uh, on Saturday Night Live that when they have the first pitch meeting with the guest that week, that, uh, they all know there's this unwritten thing. It's kind of like an inside joke where everything, they pitch on that first meeting is a joke pitch. It's like, these are ideas we're definitely not going to use. Um, 
the guy, uh, Tim Robinson from, I think you should leave. He used to be, uh, uh, a Saturday Night Live writer. And he said one of his ideas was, um, a, uh, a life jacket that was a leather life jacket for like cool guys on boats. Um, but, but they get, they would try to come up with like the worst ideas ever and they would come up with them last minute and just things that they would never do. And I think there's just something about terrible ideas that really can get the juices flowing when you're, when you're stuck. Yeah. And they're funny. So they make you laugh. It loosens you up. Yes. And you can keep going. Yeah. God, we yeah. are so, we're really smart. <laughs> we figured it out. <laughs> yeah. Cracked it. Cracked Nobody it. Nobody will crack creative block ever again. Nope. And I'm going to also go through this um, episode and count the analogies between the two of us and see what, what our total is. Speaking of Let's throwing out as many ideas as we can, I'm going to see how many analogies by the end of it. Um, okay, next myth. So I had two. Yeah. Let's. I'm going to say them both. These, these were from people after we recorded last time. People um, either mentioned them in um, on Instagram or emailed me. So the two yeah. that um, – and, and, you know, we might have time to do both – Okay. So the first one is, um, you're not a legit artist if you're self-taught. Oof. Oof. That's a, that's a big one. And then the other one is, um, everything's been said or done, so there's no point in me throwing my hat in the ring. Huge one. Oh my gosh. That, that one plagues my existence. I know. So yeah, I'm feeling him. What do you think? Should we go self-taught or there's no point in anything ever? Let's do self self thought because <laughs> let's let's end on that dark note. Okay. Uh, uh, yeah, let's go to self taught. What okay. were you? What were your thoughts on that? Um, well, I okay. So you're not legit. You're not a real artist if you're self taught. Yeah. That I mean, this is coming from a person who actually went to art school and then went to design school. So and I'm from a family like my dad has a you know master's and a PhD, and my mom went to university in the time where. A lot of women didn't go to university. So education and getting that diploma that says the thing it was always just part of, you know, my DNA. Yeah. However, I think, like, when I meet people who are self-taught and they say it in an apologetic way, like, oh, yeah, but I just, I mean, I didn't go to school for that. It makes me so mad because I think being self-taught is so... Um, impressive because you actually had the gumption you weren't just in a program whatever like you had the gumption to go and like learn this stuff for yourself like I, for you for example I love that you you clearly research and read so much stuff yeah yeah um which is being self-taught in a way like all right. the things that you've learned from all like reading all these things and I just think like that that it shows such um upstart and such gumption that you've gone out and like taught yourself how to do something. Mm -hmm. I think that's like almost more impressive than a diploma that says, you know, you got your gold star and it says you, now you are a painter. Yes. You can be a painter just by painting. Absolutely. And I think, uh, you know, I always, especially in my early twenties when I was like desperate to like get some validation or get let in the door or whatever, I'd always pull out this card, which is, yeah, I actually, I have a degree. It's, I, I got it while studying in England. Um, <laughs> sounds way fancier than it really was. Cause I essentially went to like the equivalent of a state school and did a graphic design program there. And it was not a fa fancy program whatsoever. It wasn't art school. Um, and, uh, so I'll just, that's the context for all this, but I think that I was, I was going to reject the premise here of you're not legit if you're self-taught because 
actually think no one is self-taught. I think this self-taught idea is something that is kind of created by the establishment. And I think there's some interesting things to pull out there, but no one's self-taught because everybody has seen a painting before they painted at the very least. And that, and, and honestly, I do think if you want to get good, you need to learn from mentors either virtually or, or through books or videos or Skillshare, uh, shout out (laughs) Skillshare. Brought Uh, to you back. Yeah. (laughs) But, uh, but, and, and their peers, you know, like I think, and whether those are people they actually know or people they, like I said, get through other means, you know, I don't think there is any self-taught. I think that, and, and you, and no one I think should lean into being self-sufficient. I think you need to learn as much as you can as humanly possible from your people, the people that are, have a share a sensibility and, and like the same things and have a taste for the same things and, and really dive into that. And I think to speak to this self-taught thing, I think that comes from, you know, I think you, you need to be, whenever you have these like uh, cliches that are kind of your demons or these things that, you know, like we were talking about earlier of those who can't uh, do, teach, the, these ideas, I think you got to pull at them and say, who stands to benefit from this uh, statement? And I think the whole self-taught thing to me, not to be a conspiracy theorist, but I think the, those ideas are perpetuated by the people that have huge debts to those certificates. You know what I mean? Like mm-hmm. in order for those certificates to be as as worth as much as they paid for them, they need to position it as now this is really important. Um, when I started my podcast and I started, you know, it's creative education. Uh, I had a few trolls come out of the woodwork and lo and behold, they're people from these fancy organizations that need their degrees to, to mean something. And I, and they do mean something. And I'm, there's a lot of really great things you can get from art school, but I think, you know, just start poking at this straw man, uh, the scarecrow, uh, because I think you're going to find that a lot of that comes from uh, the establishment needing to, you know, stay established. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think, I think, um, what the problem is, is that the self-taught is like a four letter word, you know? And, and exactly. I think that, um, get your education wherever you want to get your education, whether that is like an established school, like if that works for you, if that structure works for you or get your education from, like you said, like your peers or from reading and online and whatever, like that can create a really amazing education too. And I, I think, if you're a creative person that, you know, you want to be creative till you're a hundred, your education never stops. 100%. So whether you started in a, you know, building where you got a degree, um, or not, you're going to keep learning. Like I've learned more, I've learned more since leaving art school than I did in art school, you know, because I've, I've continued to be curious and I've continued to like not think that I know everything and I've reached out to people that I believe know more than me so that I can learn and keep things going and so in a way that's quote-unquote self-taught yeah 100% and And I think there ain't nothing wrong with that no there's not and I and I just always have to add a disclaimer I'm not against art school and I you know in my opinion if you can go there without uh tremendous amounts of crippling debt, uh, for whatever reason, whether it's scholarship or your parents paying for it or whatever, there's not a lot of better places in the world that has that kind of concentrated time with practitioners and peers, like, and, and having a time and space to really dedicate yourself to that. 
that is a huge, huge uh, benefit to your career. It can be an amazing thing, but um, it's not right for everybody and it's not the only path. Yeah, for sure. And I, um, oh, I'm going to plug another book that I wrote. I think it's in, um, uh, your inner critic is a big jerk. I talked to, I have a chapter about self-taught and I, um, or a section, I guess. And so I, I interviewed, um, uh, Lisa Congdon. I was, yeah, I have her in my notes as well. But. Yeah. So I talked to Lisa about her path being self-taught. Um, and then I talked to, um, oh, I'm blanking on her last name, Shauna, oh, from something's hiding. Uh, oh gosh. I'm so I... sorry, Shauna. Anyway, she, she has a master's from Cranbrook. Right. So two yeah. very different paths. Right. Yeah. And so I, I asked them basically both the same questions and then I have the interviews back to back in the book and both of them were both super happy with their path because that's the way Shauna learned and that's what suited Lisa. And so, um, I think there's an, and I thought it was a really good example because I'm such a fabulous author, um, that <laughs> it was a really good way of showing that like everybody's an individual, whatever path is right for you is right for you. And just follow that and be confident. Like, um, I think the people that have the degree, like for me, sometimes it was a bit, it was a bit crippling in that for years, mine says, you know, that I'm a, a visual arts, a BFA with visual arts with a major in painting. So for me, for the for like 20 years, if I, if it, if there wasn't paint on it, it didn't count as art because I was supposed to be a painter because that's what my degree said. So when I started doing collage, it just felt like this silly little craft thing because it wasn't oil paint. Paint. Yeah. And so I think sometimes when you have gone the, the school route, you can kind of paint yourself, in, paint yourself into, you can paint, I got to write that down. You can paint yourself into this corner of believing that, you know, it's like, well, I studied this, so this is the only thing that I can do. Um, yeah. and then self-taught people are so hard on themselves because they're like, well, I didn't, I don't have the degree saying whatever. So I think everybody is just hard on themselves, no matter what the path. So I think in debunking this myth, I basically wanted to say, do you just, just do yeah. you do the stuff, make the work, have the fun. Who cares if you had those four years in a school or not, you know, like you're going to learn for the next 60 years anyway. So just, just who cares and just keep making. And yeah, I love that. And I think the, it, it, it makes me realize that the real thing you got to do here is identify where are you self-sabotaging with limiting beliefs? Because, you know, the people that get held back by, oh, I'm only self-taught, don't realize, you know, I've worked with uh, so many people that went to the fanciest art schools and they have so many blind spots and limiting beliefs that they picked up on while at art school because art school, you're with a lot of teachers that have a lot of strong opinions. And some of those opinions just work their way, worm their way into your brain. You can't, and they have these, these weird expectations or these, you know, these weird rules about what's art, what's not art, like all these things that end up getting in the brain and destroying their ability to do their thing. And so I, I love that. I think that is the takeaway If you've got to figure out you know, I'm a huge believer in this idea of like, you don't become you until you actively disobey your heroes. Like, uh, I always say the same thing because I just like it so much, but it's just this idea of, uh, Luke Skywalker doesn't become Luke Skywalker until he 
disobeys Yoda and goes to save Han and Leia. Like that's <laughs> the moment. That's it. Like it, you don't become the master until you're like, you know what? I'm not doing it your way. Like that. That's when you become you. Um, and so you gotta you gotta highlight those those blind spots. Mm-hmm. Well, and I've I've told this story five million times too. But when when um, I finally um, when I interviewed Wayne White in 2015 and and was asking him about how he handles people not thinking that funny art is real art, and he was just like, "Who cares?" Well, he didn't actually say that. He said, "Fuck it." But um, <laughs> uh, and I just That's remember better. being like, "Oh yeah." Why do I care? That was a seed that was planted when I was 20 in art school. And here I am in my mid-40s and I'm still believing that. Having to unlearn the yes. things you learned. So yeah, you know, and, and it was finally when learn. I just let myself be funny and I just let my art be who I am. Yes. Was the biggest relief of my creative life. And um, it took being, I think I was 42 when I had that aha moment. And it's like I've now had the last, you know, five years of like really having fun. And now my art is actually doing something because it is just me. There's no layers of other stuff. It's just me being me. And God, what a relief. Absolutely. Absolutely. I, I, yeah, I've had those experiences over and over. I think that it reminds me of high school because I think that there's this weird thing that gets into your head of this is who you have to be to be cool uh, when actual, when actually the only cool people in school were being themselves. So there was mm-hmm. no, like, you know, putting on this thing. Like as soon as you're doing that, you're uncool. And I think, uh, for me, that was a big, that's been, I'm still working through it. Honestly, like for instance, uh, you know, I call myself Andy J pizza. I'm pretty sure nine out of 10 of my heroes would not respect that. <laughs> <laughs> that wouldn't do it for them. And I, and I also am like leaning heavier into pop culture references. Cause that's just who I am. Like I grew up in the Midwest, you know, the way that my dad would bond with me is take me to the movies. And so it's just, that's what I've got. And I think, uh, that there's definitely some of my heroes that would be like, you know, that's like <laughs> fan art or something. And yeah, I think you've got to figure out where are those limiting belief, cliche, blind spots that you've adopted because of, um, other people's values and not your own. Do you think that just comes with age? I think it does with it with age. And if you're putting in the work, that's yeah. I'm a huge believer in like, uh, you know, I, I believe it was like Bruce Brainstein talking about how he's so much like his dad, but unlike his dad, he had music to work out his demons. And I think that the, you know, that's the thing about my side quest process is that it's like, it's not about, it's not just about sitting back, sitting back and asking, who am I? It's saying, who do I think I am? And let me make something, let me taste it. Let me test it. Let me take some action on those things and kind of analyze how it went and then make, make another plan and pivot to a different direction. I think it does come with age, but only, you know, there's, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of, um, uh, this is harsh, but <laughs> there's a lot of people uh, in old age that didn't grow at all. Sadly. Yeah. Yes, that's you know true. I mean? mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I think, um, you know, I think we're lucky enough to be creative people because it's just a, it's a, yeah, it's self-expression, but it's also a tool for self-excavation if you'll use it that way. True. And actually I was just thinking as you started to say that, because, you know, I always say, oh, I think, it, you know, with turning 40, I, you know, I think Hello? with age, oh, age. Oh, did Whoops. you lose me? Yeah, I did. Oh. I don't know what happened there. Okay, I'm still here. I'll cut okay. that out or we'll just keep going. Um, yeah. I think because I always say, oh, you know, I turned 40 and I got blah, blah, blah. But 
as you were saying that, I was like, yeah, but you know, I have discounted the fact that from 22 till 42, I put creative blinders on and was like, la, 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 like, I, and I didn't really make anything and I made excuses and whatever. And then in my 40s, I started making again. And so I've attributed getting older, but it's like I actually just started doing the work in my 40s. Yeah. Interesting. Exactly. Yeah. Yet another aha moment. Nice. Thanks, Andy J. Pizza. <laughs> um, okay. Should we do, should we do the, um, everything's been done. So there's no point in me doing anything. If we've got time, I'm okay. Let's do that and then call it a day. All righty. Okay. Let's do it. Oh, this is so hard. This was my life. This was my 20 years with the blinders on. Yeah. Everything's, especially when the internet was invented. This is literally my kryptonite. And, uh, you know, are you familiar with the Enneagram personality test? No. Okay. So it, you know. I have kind of a love-hate relationship with personality tests um, because I think like, I think one of the main things we're doing on this planet is figuring out who we are and anything that promise, promises to tell you who you are with like a 30-minute test in an afternoon should be dealt with with deep suspicion. <laughs> um, but So I'm, a, you know, I'm suspicious, but I think, I don't think they're great for, I don't think those personality tests are great for answers, but I do think they're good for questions. And, uh, and I, and I, so in the Enneagram, you have these nine numbers, nine different personality types. And, uh, and I've heard it described as like, it's almost like a persona, uh, personality test because it's really about who did you think you needed to be, to be loved. And, uh, and I think that for me, the Enneagram four type thinks they have to be a one of a kind original to be loved. And, I think that there anything that questions my originality uh, cripples me in panic, and I've had to. Uh, I'm putting in the work to figure out, you know, how do I get past that? What's the truth of that? What's the what's the good part of you know always desperate desperate to be a original, and what are the parts that are self sabotage? Um, so I put in a, a ton of thought and work into this. Um, so yeah, I really relate to this idea or this myth. Has that ever, did that ever stop you? Like when you first were illustrating and stuff like trying to develop a style of your own? Absolutely. I think I had, um, I've had many existential crises and they're still (laughs) happening for the, and probably will for the rest of my life. And I actually think, um, I'm so passionate about this idea because, um, I, you know, I think part of where this comes from is that a lot of the creative masters are go, are communicating like the aha moment they had where things really got good for them is when they disobeyed their heroes, right? Like they, they're like, and then I quit imitating my heroes and I chose to just be myself. For instance, like, um, see this in standup comedy and a lot, they're kind of my, my, uh, heroes of creativity. I think they're some of the, the biggest masters of it. Um, George Carlin, Everybody knows George Carlin for his irreverent kind of in your face, anti-establishment, um, you know, raunchy humor. And that's uh, today. That's how we think of this guy. He's a comedy legend. And I listened to this, him give advice about, uh, creative development. And he talks about 
this moment where he quit being a ripoff of his hero and he went out on stage. He was already a professional. He, you know, he was on the, I think Johnny Carson show and he came out and he had this cardboard cutout of him in a suit and him basically imitating his hero. And he threw it off stage and he said, that guy's dead. And, uh, and we love that. It's amazing. And that is the moment where the George Carlin, as we know him was born. And, but I think that story, uh, is what is the birth of this myth because mm-hmm. he didn't become that moment didn't happen from disobeying his heroes. It was a narrative there where he, the, the first half of that journey is obsessively mimicking his hero. Yeah. And the same was true for Eddie Murphy and the same was true for Richard Pryor and the same is true for Mike Birbiglia and the, like you can go on and on and on and on every, almost every single great, if you dive into their story, it starts from not being original. Like, and so I'm very passionate about this because I feel like I've had to unearth this myself because of this obsession with, oh no, now I'm in their territory. Oh no, this thing already exists. Like, you know, this <laughs> panic I've had to like, you know, train myself not to self-sabotage and understand the part of that. Um, and the other thing I've thought about, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. I'm monologuing again. No, I um, love it. I love it. That's why you're here. <laughs> but, <laughs> but another part of it that I think is relevant is, um, I'm a huge believer and, uh, you know, you should mine your unique DNA. You have DNA on this planet that will never exist, never has existed. And you need to lean into that, understand what's so powerful about um, you because there's this correlation between value and, and rarity. Like, you know, diamonds are pretty rare, so they're valuable, but you're way more rare than that. So mm-hmm. figure out what's unique about you. But if you go check out this, you know, the truth of that, um, between one person and another person, our DNA is 99.9% the same as any other person. So there's just 0.1% that's original about you, no matter how creative creative you are. And I think, um, and I think there's this kind of evolution way of thinking about creativity where there's just these little, little mutations over time and you compile them over through history and you get these big art movements that happen over the decades. Um, but you're really responsible for manifesting, uh, that 0.1%. And, uh, and I think it's, there's a, there's a calm that should happen that says, yes, you are completely unique, but you're also 99.9% like other humans. Like you're, does that make sense? Yeah. That takes some weight off your shoulders. Yes. Instead and of having to be 100% unique, 100% yeah. of the time, like that's terrifying and exhausting and unrealistic. <laughs> 100%. I also think it gets to the heart of like, what's the purpose of art is the purpose of art to glorify the artist or is it to bond us and have impact on each other and bring us closer together. And, um, I think often the, the artist job is like figure out that 0.1%. And, uh, and by the way, that 0.1% you're going to have in common with a bunch of other people. Mm -hmm. And it's your job to kind of give name to it and, and mirror that to people and show new things about humanity we didn't know so that new people can feel represented. And to me, art is about bringing us together instead of setting us apart. So I think there's, I think, yeah, I think yeah, there's a whole, it's not a, such a terrible thing. Well, okay. I've got a story that's going to unite this and our first myth. Yeah. Oh, I love synthesis. Oh God. This is going to tie it all up. I hope oh. I can get an analogy in there. Um, okay. So, and again, 
I'm sorry to regular listeners because I have told this story before. But when um, I finally started making art again, when I was home with Charlie when he was little and I was realizing like I needed a creative outlet, I yeah. started doing these pieces. And this is before Jealous Curator started. Um, so I hadn't really been looking at anyone else's art. I had been baking cookies and cleaning up, you know, spit up. Um, but yeah. Charlie was about two and he, he would play. He would just be, he was a little method actor and he would just be a dog for a day. Yep. And he would eat out of a bowl like a dog. Like he would just, he would only bark. Like he, he was in it. He was truly in it. <laughs> um, side note, I do think he will be an actor when he grows up. Anyway, just calling it for when he wins the Oscar and thanks his mother. I'll go back to this episode. Yeah, yeah. See? Yeah, I knew it. Mother's instinct. Um, and so I remember watching him and thinking like it was so inspiring to me. So I started doing these little painting collages of... Um, it was like Dick and Jane bodies, but with um, photographic animal heads because he would just be a little boy, but he was a dog or he would be an alligator or he would be an, a dinosaur or whatever. And I thought I was fucking brilliant. <laughs> I was like, no one's ever done this. I am a, clearly a creative genius. Um, and then I started Jell's Curator like a couple months after it and I was, you know, searching, searching around the internet for, for art to write about. And I found about 12 million people who put animal heads on children's bodies. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And I was devastated <laughs> because I was like, what? Because it wasn't like I had copied someone. I hadn't been influenced by anyone. Like this was I, I, my idea. And then yeah. it was not unique. And it crushed me. Like it didn't fuel me. It, it stopped me because I was like, everything's been said and done. So there's no point in trying. Um, and then... Let's loop back to the first one, or maybe it was our second myth. Anyway, I realized that that was, once I finished feeling sorry for myself, I realized that that was kind of the first idea. Yeah. Yep. You know, I hadn't pushed the concept or the idea further than that because I had this first idea. I loved it. I made this stuff. And so I kind of was thinking, of, you know, because I had been in advertising for 15 years and then I quit to stay home with Charlie. And so I started thinking about it that way. I was like, well, in advertising, I wouldn't have just gone to my creative director with the, the one, like kids with animal heads. I would have gone with kids with animal heads and 10 other things. Yep. And so I thought, okay, well, that's what I need to do with my art. I need to keep, and Jell's curator had just started. So I was, again, self-taught, like my education was just crazy in that time of my life because I was learning so much about the art world and other artists and what was out there and aha moments and, uh, you know, everything. And so it was like this really cool moment to realize that, you know what, I didn't copy anybody, but there's just, maybe there's just something in the universe right now. You'll kind of see that like on, uh, you know, in the art world that like there'll be these phases of things yeah. where everybody's kind of, oh, yeah. there's it's astronauts everywhere or there's this everywhere or whatever. And it's, it's not necessarily like, Sometimes I'll write about somebody and people will email me and be like, oh my God, they are completely ripping off so-and-so, but they haven't ever even seen so-and-so's work. Yeah. There's just something in the universe. And, um, so I'm very like, you know, uh, you can't judge people like that because they, they may have like, I didn't see any of those other animal heads. I swear to yes. God. Yeah. And I'm, <laughs> Hey, I've been there. I could tell you 50 stories like that. And I think... Uh, just because I understand those demons as much as anybody else, I'll say the next thing that'll, the next demon that'll show up in your head with that is, 
well, yeah, but maybe you did see it and subconsciously logged it because yes. that happens too. But, it, but, but again, I think that let's just go, let's like put the philosopher's hat on and ask the question beneath the question, because you know, where you said, well, everything's been said. So what's the point? And so you say, well, is the point to say something that's never been said? Like, is that the purpose of art? Because to me, the, the freshness of something, uh, to me, it's, it's less about saying something that's never been said. And it's about saying something that's always been said in a, in a different way, Ooh, because like that. to me, there's a, there's a truth thing there where you're, you know, we're unearthing universal truth and we're saying, okay, all the, the way that we've been saying it has been said so many times it's become cliche. How do we remember that life's about relationships and life's about love and life's short and, you know, all these things that people, the poets have been writing about it since the dawn of time. How do we, how originality then becomes not the end, uh, becomes the means of like, how do we refresh in this? Because it's kind of lost its flavor and we, and so I think just shift to me, that's been helpful of like, well, what's the point is the point for me to be an iconoclast unlike any other person and be put on a pedestal? Or am I trying to make something that helps us bond and helps others feel seen and, and moves us and makes life meaningful? Like it, I think that's what creative stuff is about. Mm-hmm. And you know, the thing is like, if, if the idea was, you know, um, um, life is about love. What you would create and what I would create out of that same idea are completely different. 100%. So, I love yeah, we, yeah. So we can say the same, we can be having the same, um, like hitting on the same cliche, but it's going to be executed completely differently. And that's where your, your unique touch, that's where your, what is it? 1%, 0.1%. Yeah, 0.1%. Yeah. That's where your 0.1% comes in. Absolutely. And I, I love also the two things that you said that, uh, I just, I think these are great things to kind of put in your creative tool belt. Um, one is, uh, this idea of like something's in the water. So Liz Gilbert talks about this in big magic where think about creativity, like an actual muse, which is how they thought about it back in the ancient Greece, ancient Greek days, they would think about them like actual, an idea as a spirit and it would show up to you. And if you didn't do it, it would show up to somebody else. And I think there's some kind of collective unconscious going on with our ideas. And I think if you, the other thing you mentioned is like the movement aspect of, you know, I look back at the seventies and I think about, uh, Peter Max and Milton Glaser and, and, uh, and, and all the, and, and Seymour Quast all working in these, in this time. And I'm sure back in the day, they looked at each other and like thought they were all doing groundbreaking, original, one of a kind work, but zoom out. And the average person at least has a hard time differentiating the work because there was something in the water. Yeah. Right. And i and again, like I'm not giving anybody an excuse to copy anybody. I'm not, I'm just, I'm just giving you an excuse to keep trying. To, yeah. to find that 0.1% and, and give yourself some grace yes. because, uh, the point is that, um, well, I don't know, it's a process, right? Um, yeah. I'm glad you made those animal heads. And actually I think they're as le- legitimate as anybody else's. Uh, I just think, uh, you didn't, you didn't stop there either. Right. And I think, oh, watch this. I'm going to tie it all up. I yeah. think that's the thing with all three of these myths is that what we're saying is like, all of these could stop you. Just don't stop. Yes, 100%. Oh, my God. Oh my and that's God. where we but stop. stop. <laughs> <laughs> but you said don't stop. Oh, crap. Okay, this podcast is just going to go forever. <laughs> the longest <laughs> podcast. Guinness Book of World Records. Yeah, that's amazing. This was another great session of Busting Myths.
It was so fun. I love doing this. I know, me uh, too. Yeah. Thank you for having me on. I love chatting with you about this stuff. I know me too. And it's got me all fired up to go and actually fill in my, um, my Skillshare, um, <laughs> production sheet. I'm feeling all like, yeah, aha moment, aha moment. I'm ready to go. Awesome. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much for doing this. And uh, yeah, I'm going to keep on paying attention to all the crazy things that you're doing. And I will report back to you after I finish filming that and let you know um, how it went. <laughs> Amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. Okay. Have a great day. Yeah, you too. Okay. Bye, Andy. Oh, I could talk to Andy all day, every day. Just imagine how many analogies we could come up with in a 24-hour period. Thank you to Andy once again for taking time out of his insanely busy schedule to bust some myths with me. Oh, and if you have any that you want us to answer, just message me or um, comment on Instagram and we will put them on our list. Thank you to art consultant Alyssa Sexton for supporting this episode. And of course, thank you for listening. There will be more art for your ear next weekend. See you then.